so there's this s- small pond uh, choked with gadwalls. I mean, lots of gadwalls on, on the surface. And I had this German short hair pointer um, that was, you know, pr- pretty, pretty good dog. So uh, we put the bird up, the bird uh, gets a nice pitch. And uh, there was a patch of cattails at, at the edge of the uh, of the pond, right? So we flush the the uh, the gadwalls, and the bird comes down, hits two ducks, and then binds to the third one. And I really didn't, you know, pay much attention to that. I I, I walked over to uh, to the bird, and uh, you know, picked her up from the duck, and I was feeding her and everything. And then you know, the dog was just running around, and then the dog gets into the cattails and comes out with a gadwall in his mouth. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast and what is now the finale of our first ever international series which features some of Mexico's finest and we have to start off by giving one last thank you to some of the people who made this series possible, being the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available. For more information on their products, including the awesome GPS system, head to marshallradio.com. We'd also like to thank the North American Falconers Association and the Falconry Fund, whose small grants program helped make endeavors like this possible. Their small grants program helps stimulate innovative science, outreach, and scholarly activities for the North American falconry community, and also specifically supports raptor conservation, falconry traditions, and falconers themselves. For more information on the Falconry Fund, head to falconryfund.org. And for more information on the North American Falconers Association, head to www.n-a-f-a.com. And we also need to thank our friends at Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine for their continued joint efforts in helping to promote the art of falconry across the world. If you need to get into some new good falconry content, articles, pictures, etc., I highly recommend you head to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and subscribe. And last but certainly not least, our series featuring Mexico concludes with Rodrigo Monroe Wilson, who... I have to give a lot of credit to for making this series happen. Without his help, I don't believe that I could have pulled this off. He was gracious enough not only to host me, but help contact all these wonderful falconers who I had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know a little bit during this week's stay in Mexico. And like I said, without his help, I don't think I could have pulled this off or or make this happen. So thank you again so much, Rodrigo, for helping make this happen and I also have to send a thank you to the Colsons who were the ones who initially made the introduction between Rodrigo and I so thank you again very much Tom and Jen for all of your help during this process and thanks again to to all the wonderful Falconers who took the time to share their stories and meet up with me over the course of this week and of course thank you all for listening and I hope you've enjoyed and uh, gotten something out of it so anyway with that I give you all Rodrigo Monroe Wilson. Here we go. Thank you again, Rodrigo, for going ahead and allowing me to, like I said earlier, invade your home, your life, and disrupt it for a week. No, it's been uh, it's been a great trip. Uh, we've been happy to have you here. Uh, I think we've uh, been able to uh, show you some good hawking and a little bit of uh, Mexican falconry. And I think you've uh, had some good interviews for the podcast. So uh, overall, I think uh, it's been a successful trip, and it's been a pleasure to have you here. It's always it's always good to have an excuse to take a few days off from work and uh, and enjoy falconry and and friends. So it's been it's been great. Thank you. Well, no, I'm it's any anytime I can actually bring some degree of positivity to someone else's life, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'll always consider that a win. Um, yeah, I mean, Lord knows, uh, you know, my life is uh, kind of all over the place and kind of can be a, a train wreck from time to time. So anytime I can uh, <laughs> be, be a convenient excuse for some positivity for somebody else, then it's, it makes it all that much better when everything goes well. Well, thank you. You, uh, you brought some rain that was much needed, some good weather, and uh, some good times. So we've been uh, with... Uh, I guess we've had a we've had a good time and uh, 
had some uh, some fun days, right? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And like I said, you you have a, a, a really nice new house. I I look forward to seeing it again whenever it's you know all completed. And but you've got a great view. And how long did you say you've been in this house now? Uh, we we moved uh, just before Christmas. It uh, you know because of COVID, the uh, construction was delayed. And you know that m most of the house was built, right? But uh, we still needed to finish bathrooms, doors, floors, windows, air conditioning, you know, all those little details that uh, even though the house is there, you still can't live in it because uh, so many things are missing. <laughs> but uh, we moved in right before Christmas and we had to kind of camp a little bit. But, uh, you know, you are officially our first guest in this in this house so uh yeah it, we, we had to uh make some last uh minute uh arrangements to the guest room or, or you know we, but we finally got it semi-completed so you've you've you know had to to camp a little bit here too but you know for, fortunately we got it done on time well this uh, this isn't really camping i've 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 uh camped out and uh significantly worse conditions <laughs> inside and outside houses before no this is this has been great as i told you and and told uh you know jen and and uh you know whatsapp i uh, have already marked my territory this is officially my uh, second room now you're either going to have to build a new guest room or uh, people are going to have to just deal with uh with the fact that this has already been marked and is is mine now so this is this is my second home. Well, you're always always welcome. <laughs> no, it's it's been great though, and and uh, you know, like I said, it's it was um, it was really cool on um, on Monday, you know, seeing it, of course after our our little uh, you know uh, slight uh, delay. I don't even know if you call it a mishap on uh, you know getting here and, and finding out about you know the surprise uh, you know tax and things like that. Uh, <laughs> you know for uh, for uh, for recording equipment that neither of us knew about and and stuff. I mean, like I, I really can't complain on you know like, at all about how uh, this week is gone and uh, you know the the hunt that we did on on Monday uh, Monday morning I should say was was pretty eye opening to me. You know, in a, in a couple of different ways, I was surprised. Number one, like kind of how similar that, you know, the, the hunting kind of is, especially like, you know, with, with the goshawks and, and stuff, but I mean, with, with subtle differences here and there, but, but yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, your typical hunting grounds and, and the different, you know, the different, um, you know, types of, I mean, you, I know you told me you're pretty much, you know, primarily, uh, you know, a quail hunter, but I mean, for the most part, Ever since you've lived in Monterey, that's been kind of your primary thing to hunt, hasn't it? Isn't that what you said? Well, I mean, not not really. I uh, I mean, I love I love quail, and uh, the 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 dogs add uh, something you know very important to the hunt, right? I've I've hawked a little bit of everything. I, I really like quail. Um, if yeah, like I told you, if if I had to pick. You know that would be like my favorite quarry to to fly. Um, I've hawked uh, cottontails, jackrabbits, quail, both uh, bobwhite and uh, scaled mainly, and a little bit of Mearns quail or Moctezuma quail we, that are you know difficult to find in in my state, uh, usually inside the forest. But I've hawked them in other uh, states in Mexico with success, and of course you know. Ducks, ducks, and a little bit of you know doves and other quarry like uh, snipe and stuff like that. But that's like, I mean, that is not my main thing, right? If yeah. if if I had to tell you what have I hawked the most is probably yes, quail, ducks, and jackrabbits with gotcha. you know hair socks and gauze socks. Now uh, we're we're focusing on quail right now because I'm breeding gauze socks. And uh, the jackrabbit populations are really low right now. A couple of years ago, we had this um, hemorrhagic uh, rabbit virus that basically wiped out our cottontail and, and jackrabbit population. So it's very difficult to, to hawk. You, you saw it yourself. I mean, we, we walked uh, for a couple of hours in prime country, and I think we saw a couple jackrabbits in, a, in an area where you would normally you know, see at least 20 in that same period of time or in, in that territory, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, 
yeah, the, the, I mean, I, I, I like the, the, the dog work, the, the, the pointing dogs is something that I really enjoy. So, um, yeah, but I've hawked uh, a lot of ducks with, with peregrines and, uh, and caught, uh, I mean, <clears throat> I really enjoy um, also hawking jackrabbits. In the beginning, it, it was mostly Harris hawks and, and now, you know, with, with the goshawks. And now that we're breeding them, I mean, it, it's just, uh, I guess, logical that you, you, uh, you, you fly what you breed, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'm really breeding them because I wanted to have the availability to, to fly them, right? Because in Mexico, we, um, I mean, you don't have access to, to wild goshawks. They're, they're, I mean, you, you can't uh, legally trap them. And the, the range of goshawks in Mexico is really restricted. So, you know, the, the obvious choice was to, to get some birds and, and breed them in captivity to, to have stuff to fly, right? To have birds to fly. So um, that's what, uh, what we've been doing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess I should have uh, you know, specified that's kind of what you're flying now as opposed to what you're, you know, when kind of like your favorite. But yeah, I mean, and, and you kind of like you, you were telling me earlier also, normally you have, you know, a few different types of birds that you have in kind of like a hunting party that you try and, and hunt, you know, at the same time on your hunts and stuff. But because of the circumstance, that's... I, I remember you said you telling me now that because of the circumstances with the way things are with that virus and everything else, it's pretty much you're just primarily hunting quail with the goshawks because of well, that's just you know what you have to hunt at the moment. Yeah, uh, and um, yeah, normally like you mentioned, we usually have a couple of birds. Like you know, we would have a Harris hawk for the jackrabbits and a peregrine for the for the ducks, and maybe. Uh, you know, an, an aplomado for quail or a tersel peregrine for quail or maybe a cooper's hawk for quail. But normally we would fly at least uh, a long wing and, and a short wing, right? Mostly, most of the time it's um, a long wing for ducks and uh, a Harris hawk for, for jackrabbits because Monterrey, the city where, where we live, uh, has gotten bigger and bigger, right? So you have to drive at least... Uh, you know, one hour and a half, or one hour, 45 minutes to go to a decent hawking area, right? So you've driven all this time. If, if you go out there, you fly your falcon, catch one duck uh, or maybe two, and then that's it. You you have to drive for an hour and a half. And, and, and the place used to be loaded with jackrabbits and other quarries, so it was only logical to, to, to fly another bird, right? You're already out there. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, but uh, you know, with with the building of the house and all that stuff, I, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a surgeon and I have limited time, so so it, it was it was not a good time for me to start uh, a new bird. I, I'm talking about a long wing, right? Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so we're we're pretty happy, and hopefully we'll add a long wing to the to the team next year. But uh, right now, yeah, we've we've been focused on quail for the last two seasons. Mostly desert quail, mm -hmm. uh, which is what we find uh, a bit more challenging, scaled quail. Uh, we have other areas for, for bob whites, but uh, I think the flights at scaled quail are, are, uh, are a bit more, more challenging for, for everybody. I mean, the, the terrain is, is, is complicated. There's, it's rocky. It's irregular. Uh, you have lots of cactus. You know, everything wants to sting you and bite you. And, uh, you know, there's thorns of, of all kinds. And it's, it's hard <laughs> on your boots and it's hard on the dogs. But, um, you know, it's, it's really challenging quarry and, I mean, really worthy quarry, right? Sure. Yeah. I, mean, I, I hadn't really gotten a chance to, to fly quail at all. I mean, as I was telling you, you know, before we don't really have a whole lot of quail left in our area. You know, the cubbies are very few and far between. It's a, it's a form of hunting that is, uh, not something that I've been very familiar with. And this is actually the first time I've, I've seen quail hawking in person, um, whether it's with goshawks or any species. I mean, I, I haven't been exposed to it, unfortunately. I mean, I, after seeing it, you know, I, I think it's cool. Uh, I, I, can totally respect it you know i mean i'm not sure it's something that i would uh you know consider at the the top of the the list for me personally but i i can totally see why people like it and uh you know get a lot out of it but yeah i mean i just especially you know in in this type of setting that you're in especially certain times of year not only do you have the the plants and the different terrain but you also have rattlesnakes and and other stuff that uh yeah i'm not i'm not really told, so sure that i <laughs> 
I was totally, totally sure I'd be, you know, super down with that, <laughs> you know, all the time. But I mean, I understand you just, you, you know, it's the circumstances you have to deal with though. Yeah. Uh, rattlesnakes are, are a problem in our area. We, uh, you know, try to train our dogs, you know, to avoid them with, uh, of course, the, uh, the training collar. Uh, <clears throat> the nice thing is that uh, once you get, uh, you know, once the temperatures start dropping, in that area where we flew quail, that's uh, more than 1,000 meters. So that's more than 3,000 feet higher than Monterrey, right? So it's much, much uh, colder. Uh, for example, here it, it would be, you know, really warm in October. And if you go out there early in the morning, it'd be very nice temperature to fly and, and work the dogs. So there you get freezing temperatures or you get cold temperatures a lot sooner than we do down here. Like, like for example, the, the Bob White country, which is lower, it's almost at sea level and it's uh, agricultural. Uh, th- you have to be very careful with, with rattlesnakes because they'll be out almost until December because we don't get any freezing temperatures until very late in the year. Um, in the higher ground in the desert where, uh, where we get the scaled quail, usually uh, freezing temperatures come sooner and you get rid of the rattlesnakes. So you can basically not worry about them. Basically, this season, we only saw one rattlesnake in October and, and she was pretty lethargic, you know, which means that, you know, the, the cold the temperature slow them down and then they go underground and then you don't see them again until maybe, uh, you know, late February or early March that it starts warming up. But, you know, right, right now uh, in, in the desert country, we don't worry much about rattlesnakes in the, in the other areas which, where it's warmer and, um, you know, we, we don't get so much cold. Then, you know, you're, you're hawking. Uh, you have to be very careful. No, I totally get that. Yeah, and and as far as you know, I have kind of touched on this with uh, with a couple other guys, and then of course, you know, on the drives that we've had and all that. But you know, just the effects of of growth in in cities, and you know how that obliterates some of your you know hunting spots and and all that. But I mean, touch a little bit on you know just how much that's that's affected your your hawking here over the last you know few decades or so i mean i know you were telling me that you know it used to be so much easier because you know you could you know get out and in short times you know be out in hawking fields and now you know you have to you know drive hour and a half two hours and stuff but you know kind of i mean it i think it's it's good to know you know at least for for other people you know that are listening that live in different parts of the world that you know not just their areas are being affected by you know all this construction and stuff yeah, I mean, I've I've been fortunate enough to to uh, have visited falconers, and I've been hawking in the U.S., um, in Europe, in South America, and uh, I guess this is the common denominator, right? Everybody has lost uh, good good hawking grounds to development or farming or you know you name it. But yeah, Monterrey has gotten really big, and like uh, I guess it's the same story for everybody almost everywhere right Un- unless you really live in a, in a in a small town or in a rural setting if you live in a city uh, you know you need to it, it takes you longer to 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 get out of the city and and and, and to find uh, some 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 good hawking right so uh, yeah it's i think it's uh well at least for me it uh, now i need to at least drive for an hour to get to a field where I can fly a long wing, just fly for training. You know, if, if I'm going to drone the bird or I'm going to, you know, fly at a homing pigeon or just, you know, basic training, I, I need to drive at least an hour to get to a field. And then if I want to hawk, uh, if I want to find an area with doves, quail, ducks, snipe, whatever it is that we're hawking, I need to drive for another at least 45 minutes. So so you're looking at uh, yeah, at least an hour and a half drive for some some real hawking, right? In the past, I could drive for you know 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and get to a place where I could fly cottontails and quail and maybe jackrabbits. Now that's impossible, right? But I, I guess uh, you know probably you know most falconers, if you ask them that same question, will will answer the same thing, right? Probably, yeah. I mean, I, and that's that's unfortunate. I mean, where I live, 
And, you know, where, where some people are still fortunate enough to live, I mean, you either have to adapt and, and uh, you know, do some degree of urban hawking or, yeah, or if you just want to, you know, stick to country hawking, yeah, you're going to be driving for, for a while. And, but I think, I, I'm, like I said, the, I just think it's important that, that people just kind of keep getting it hammered into their head, though, that, that this is not just a local thing, like this is a worldwide thing. Yes. And, you know, I don't think people can hear that enough. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a worldwide problem. Um, I'm, I have nothing against uh, urban hawking. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, an important part of of the of what I like about falconry is is that you need to get out, right? So so get out of the city, and uh, you know to a, to an open area, to a free place, right? This mm-hmm. is, is part of the the. I, I guess the experience. So, so I've not been too keen to get into uh, urban hawking, even though we have some stuff we could fly. Uh, we don't um, have a, a big starling problem here yet, but we have a lot of grackles, and there's for sure no shortage of uh, feral pigeons and sparrows in the city. But I still like to to get out, right? Mm-hmm. So, a few of my friends that uh, have gotten Harris hawks from from the ones we breed. Uh, have have uh, tried uh, you know urban hawking and they've been successful, and I have nothing against it you know really. But but for me, I, I'll try to get out uh, you know to to the to the field as much as I can. You know when, when the I hope it I, I get a chance to do it for many years. But if the time comes, I'll, I, I'll if I have to fly in the city and I have no other option, well I'll have to do it right. But right now I. I'd rather invest a couple hours driving and be able to get out and 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 hawk in a I don't know how to call it in a in a in an open area or in a rural. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. We were planning on uh, taking you out hawking quail, you know, both both bob whites and scaled quail, mm-hmm. and I really hadn't had the time this year to go scout, you know, the areas where the bob whites are. Because uh, we've been mainly fo- focusing on the uh, on the scale, but uh, I went out a couple of times, and you know, just from you know from COVID till now, a lot of the fields changed. Uh, some of you know the areas that were just grass now are orchards. There's oranges there. There's lemons there. In this area where we fly, it's a big citrus growing area, and uh, you know some of the areas that were good fields to fly. Are now uh, being developed for agriculture, right? Or, 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 or this this particular ranch that was really good was sold, and now the owner doesn't let you in. You know, still, I, I think we all have to deal with with the availability of of land, and it, it's uh, such an important thing for any falconer to have a good area with quarry to to fly, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, I guess that's uh, one of the major. Uh, things that it's always on a falconer's mind you know where are you going to fly um you know if the 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 number of quarry i mean you know the availability and the uh, you know the abundance of of what you're trying to fly because that's how you make make a bird right yeah yeah if you don't have any quarry then you you shouldn't have a a bird you know i mean it's because they're not pets you know and uh, and you're not doing the bird justice or or or, uh, being fair to the bird if you're just going to keep it not and not hunt it yeah Yeah. no exactly yeah totally agree but well, and so let's just go ahead and, and jump in a little bit then to uh, some of your history and, and, you know, just talk about how you discovered, um, you know, this sport. And, and you know, you, you mentioned that you had some experiences, you know, hunting in the, in the States and, you know, different places around the world. And yeah. you know, just kind of go into all that a little bit. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a long story. Um, We've got time. <laughs> yeah. I, um, well, I was born in Mexico City. And then because of my, my mother's work, we moved to Lima, Peru. Uh, I think I've been, always been fascinated by, by raptors. Um, I, uh, I got to see wild raptors in, in Lima, mostly migrating peregrines, um, you know, uh, hawks. Uh, you know, flying around uh, the, the city, and it, it always got my heart pumping, you know, just to see a kestrel, uh, you know, uh, got me really, really excited. So uh, I think that was from from a very, very early age. Then uh, when I was around 10 years old, 
in the market in Lima, we find we found a guy selling two IS kestrels. So uh, my my family has always had animals, you know, dogs, parrots, canaries. My, my mother works with horses. Uh, so there's always been plenty of pets in, in my house, right? But uh, there's no hunters in my family. So, uh, you know, just getting an animal that eats meat and everything was kind of, you know, my mother was not really keen on the idea, right? But I begged and begged, and finally we bought these two baby kestrels, and I, and I brought them home. And I, was, I had no idea of, of, of you know, what, uh, what to do with them. I had no, nobody to teach me uh, what, you know. All, all I had seen was probably, uh, you know, something in a medieval movie of some guy with a bird on the fist and a hood, you know, with, with feathers on top. And, and, and that was it. So all I knew is that this was uh, like a medieval sport and uh, some people practiced it in Europe and they, they hunted with the birds. That was all I knew, right? So I, 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 I raised these, these uh, kestrels and uh, it was like a tame hack situation because, of course, they were imprints. We had a really large uh, garden in, in this house where we lived in Lima. So eventually the kestrels started flying around and they were loose. So I would go out and call them, you know, whistle to them and they would fly down and I would feed them, you know, pieces of chicken heart because that's, you know, what, what we, I guess, what we thought was the proper food. Mm-hmm. And they did okay. You know, I, I, I fed them chicken, you know, little pieces of chicken gizzard and chicken heart and, and they did okay. Eventually, they started hunting on their own, and I could see, uh, you know, my kestrels, uh, you know, chasing sparrows and stuff. And a couple of times I saw them, you know, catch the, the sparrows and take them up in the tree and eat them. But they still stayed around the house. Then uh, a couple of years later, I got uh, a, a book as a gift in, in Christmas, 1987. We, we just checked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I got this book, uh, The Art of Falconry, El Arte de Cetrería, by Félix Rodríguez de la Fuente, a Spanish author, which I guess that book inspired a whole generation of, of, of uh, you know, Spanish-speaking falconers, you know, both European and Latin American. And uh, I, I consumed that, that book, right? It was the only available uh, book in Spanish. I mean, I could read English, but I, I had no falconry books available right from you know the only you know little little bits and pieces i could get from like the news or uh, some national geographic documentary you would see uh, you know a gentleman you know really smartly dressed uh, in a grouse moor with a pointer and some mention about falconry that that's all i had right mm-hmm. so uh, very few falconers in lima at the time all of them were very secretive everybody they were all uh, really uh, jealous of their knowledge they were not doing very much, really, but for some reason, they, they okay, I, did, I don't want this kid to, to learn how to, to have a bird, right? And, and um, anyway, so, so I had to kind of learn uh, by myself, and I consumed this book. Of course, this book only dealt with uh, the peregrine and uh, partridge hawking, a little bit on magpie hawking with a cast, and basically the training of the goshawk. Uh, to catch rabbits and hares and that was it and it was really very basic it didn't teach you any weight control Uh, I had some photos of what a hood is supposed to be and the jesses and the swivel and the block perch and a bow perch and a muse and that was it right Mm -hmm. so I mean something very inspiring very well written Um, it really got your you know you got your imagination flying because it described all these high mounting flights and uh, stoops at, uh, at uh, you know, partridge and all of this. So for a, for a, you know, for a 10 year old or 12, 12 year old kid, uh, it was really something, you know, and I think I read the book cover to cover maybe 10 times, you know, uh, uh, and I just basically consumed everything. I probably, you know, could tell you, you know, where the pictures, p- pictures were in which page and what paragraph <laughs> said this or that. Uh, finally, but, but I mean, it, it didn't ha- didn't, ha- didn't uh, say anything about the birds I had available, which were kestrels, harrisocks, aplomato falcons, you know, passage, uh, tundra peregrines. So that's how my falconry started. I, uh, there's not a lot to fly in the coast of Peru, which is basically a desert. There's some valleys that have some some quarry, but basically it's 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 some some birds, right? The, uh, we fly the coots, moorhens. Um, you know, these uh, rails, 
rails. And I wrote an article for the NAFA journal, which is called Return to Puerto Viejo, which talks about, you know, me moving to Mexico and developing as a falconer in Mexico with all sorts of different birds and quarries. And then coming back uh, 10 or 15 years later to Peru, to the same areas where I got started as a as a kid, right? And you know, it, it's it, 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 it's called a re Return to Puerto Viejo, and it's in one of the NAFA journals. I, I don't remember which year, but uh, you know, should be able to to find it. Um, so um, then we moved uh, because of my my mother's work again. We moved to Mexico, and uh, it was a like an eye opener for me, and it was just crazy because, for example, in Peru, I didn't have a F uh, fur, you know, fur quarry to fly. So here I had cottontails, I had jackrabbits, I had an abundance of, you know, Harris hawks, big Harris hawks, right? That, that could handle jackrabbits because the Harris hawks in South America are smaller. So uh, then I had, of course, Aplomato falcons. I had Cooper socks that I dreamt about. You know, I, I just saw pictures in, in, you know, in books. And uh, so, oh, wow, a sparrowhawk. You know, the, the only sparrowhawk available in, in Peru was a bicolored hawk. And it was extremely difficult to get. And for a, for a high school kid, right, with, with no support from my parents, because, you know, they allowed me, they tolerated me keeping birds, but they, I had no encouragement, right, because they ate meat, they were predators, and my, my family is basically a non-hunting family. So, so I came to Mexico, I was a little older, I had a car, you know, so I could, I could do some more stuff. So uh, anyway, I, 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 I was exposed to, uh, to uh, quail, to ducks, to doves, and then of course, uh, NAFA. So I became a member, this was in 1989, probably, and then there was a little bit more falconers here in Mexico. So I got in touch with Alex Franco, uh, which uh, uh, lives in Mexico City, also a NAFA member. He's the one actually that got me to join NAFA. And then I started meeting uh, other, other falconers. Um, uh, getting in touch via phone, you know, there was no email at the time, you know, so uh, slowly I started, you know, developing, you know, flying other birds and, you know, learning. Then uh, a big, uh, big thing for me was uh, in the probably 1991 or 92, uh, a group of people here in Monterrey uh, wanted to start uh, a bird collection for conservation. So we started with uh, like a research aviary and we had parrots and had crassids and also had raptors, right? So I had a few, you know, like a couple of Harris hawks and maybe a, an aplomato and a peregrine falcon. I started working with the local authorities because there was nobody doing uh, raptor rehabilitation. So we started, you know, I started getting all the injured birds or the birds were, that were confiscated from the illegal bird dealers. They brought them to us and I tried to, to rehab these birds. Um, so then when, when the people that were sponsoring this effort saw the hawks, they liked it and they said, well, you know, why don't we do something bigger, something, you know, serious with, with these raptors. So then at that time, Andres Marcelo Sada uh, from Monterrey was uh, a member of the board of directors of the Peregrine Fund. So he introduced me to Peter Jenny, uh, Bill Burnham. I had the opportunity to go visit them in the U.S. And then I met Pete Widener. I met Tom Meckley. I met uh, the Much Brothers. I met uh, Dan Conkle. And, um, you know, all, all those guys uh, kind of took me under their wing and uh, and I learned a lot from from them, you know. And they had a lot of patience uh, with me, and and then that's how I got into uh, what you would call, uh, you know, like modern falconry, right? Because I, I was, uh, you know, in the in the I had no uh, information, no resources. So basically, I bought every book I could. I discovered that uh, you could buy uh, falconry equipment, you could buy kangaroo leather. Uh, then telemetry came around and everything. So. In one of those visits to uh, to uh, Wyoming, to Sheridan, Wyoming, uh, visiting P. Jenny, he introduced me to Dan Conkle, which at the time was uh, training a large group of jeers to go sell in the Middle East. And there was a falconer uh, called Richard Esposito, uh, Dick Esposito, uh, from Colorado, working with Dan Conkle. Uh, so... Um, 
as you know, to make a long story short, um, we hired Richard Esposito to come and work uh, here in, in Monterrey, Mexico, for uh, for Mr. Alfonso Romo, my uncle, um, as a professional falconer, and uh, and I learned a lot from him. Uh, basically, you know how to fly falcons. I, I learned from from Richard um, everything from you know telemetry. Uh, homing pigeons, husbandry, you know, how to, how to teach a bird to wait on all that stuff. So, so, you know, I guess those guys were my, uh, my mentors, you know, uh, Pete Widener, uh, Pete Jenny, uh, Tom Meckley and uh, Richard Esposito, uh, Brian Much, Dale Much. So th those guys were like my mentors in, uh, in, you know, getting started with, with, with falconry. Of course, uh, I had other other quarries here, I don't have grouse. We don't have grouse here. Um, we don't have partridge. I have quail. My upland bird is quail in my area. You know, we have some wild pheasants in Mexico, but they're on the other side of the country. And I had ducks. So so that's what, uh, you know, I guess I started flying mostly with long wings ducks. And then I discovered pointing dogs. Uh, we, uh, we had, um, we were bumping quail all the time when we went out to fly the falcons and uh and i got a german short hair pointer and that's where it all changed right we, we started also started hawking quail with cooper's hawks then aplomato falcons and then what is my favorite now which is the long wings and and the goshawks right and uh, this time well i had the opportunity to uh you know collaborate with tom meckley with the south padre island peregrine falcon banding program we did some banding work with peregrines on the coast of Mexico. We got a special permit from from the Mexican government to to, uh, to trap peregrines, and then this foundation, which was called Fundacionara, got together with another institution in the U.S., which was called Earthspan, to uh, work with satellite telemetry. So we did. Uh, it was the first time in Mexico that satellite telemetry was used to study wildlife, and we studied the the home ranges of golden eagles which are endangered in Mexico and it's the national bird of Mexico. So we did that and we also did uh, telemetry work on, uh, on tundra peregrines wintering in the Mexican Gulf Coast, which was, you know, some really cool, some really cool stuff. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, that's great. I mean, I, like I said, we, um, we, we've got plenty of time. I'm glad that you elaborated, you know, so much on that, you know, I mean, I, uh, like I said, I, I, I know people appreciate hearing, you know, these, these kind of backgrounds and stories from, from different falconers and, and, um, you know, it seems like the longer, the better. So that's, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad that, yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that you had a long one to share, to be honest, you know, like I said, it's, it's, um, and it's nice when people kind of go more in, into, into depth, you know, with all that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I tried to make a really long story short because, because, <laughs> you know, I can easily get sidetracked into, into a story and uh you know but i mean this is this is like a like overall what i've what i've been doing for the last uh i don't know more than 25 years right yeah. uh i've been fortunate to work with raptor rehabilitation so uh i've had the opportunity to work with passage peregrines haggard peregrines isis i mean not just peregrines i mean hawks of all kinds from the species we've had here, uh, you know, even some tropical uh, species like hawk eagles and semi-colored forest falcons. So I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to try a little bit of, of everything, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope I'm not boring you with no, all of this. No, 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 I, I, I mean it. Like, I, the longer the stories, the, the better. But, you know, a couple of things I do want to touch on a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned a couple things, you know, like the whole mentor situation that mm -hmm. you had and... You know, like, you know, sometimes running into the whole, you know, like a legal trade issue, you know, that, that sometimes, you know, can happen in, in other countries that don't have a lot of, you know, regulation and, and things like that. I wanted in our episode at least to kind of touch a little bit more on, you know, some of uh, a little bit more elaborately anyway, you mm -hmm. know, some of the main differences between falconry in Mexico and falconry and, and, you know, countries like the U.S. and, and even some other, you know, like even other countries, like as far as just, you know, what the main differences are with, with, uh, with regulations and, and, you know, I, th I think that, you know, we don't have to go super in depth to all that, but, yeah. but I think it's important, you know, like I said, I mean, that people kind of understand, you know, that not everything's the same everywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, um, regulations, 
in Mexico, as far as, uh, you know, the ability to keep a raptor are very restrictive. Mm-hmm. What the law in Mexico says is that you cannot keep a wild raptor in captivity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the only, the only reasons that you could, uh, I guess, handle a wild raptor is for research purposes, right? But not for falconry. So the, the law says that all raptors in Mexico have to be captive bred, uh, like most countries in Europe, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, you know that the reality is, is, uh, is different, right? Mm-hmm. And that's probably because of a lack of enforcement of these regulations. Uh, we could talk all night uh, <laughs> about this, and you know now that it's uh, there. I have some really strong feelings about about this, but uh, that's one of the main differences. Um, falconry is is not uh, you know properly legalized and regulated in Mexico. It's kind of accepted. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, you don't have uh, to take a test to get a falconry license. That doesn't exist here. Basically, you. Uh, you, you get the bird from a legal source, hopefully, right? Mm-hmm. And then you just register the bird in, in your name. So, so, so Mr. Uh, Jonathan Munier uh, keeps a red tail, right? Mm-hmm. And he got it from a breeder. And then that's it, okay? So no, nobody checks your facilities. Nobody checks if you uh, know enough to properly keep a raptor. And that's it. So uh, at least in our local state club in Nuevo León, we have tried to to do that uh, more like the uh, like the American way. Okay, tried mm-hmm. to have like a sponsorship deal where the new guys, uh, you know, get to hang out and go fly with the older guys. It's not uh, it's not like a I guess formal sponsorship uh, program, right? Uh, because we can't keep you from getting a bird. You know, a lot of people here in Mexico get the bird first and then they want to figure out what to do with it. Okay. And some people end up being falconers and, and doing it long term and some others don't, but it's just because there's an availability of, of, of birds, right? You can, mm-hmm. you can, you can go to a market and, and you'll probably be able to buy a, a hair sock or a red tail. There's plenty of raptor breeders now in Mexico uh, but it didn't used to be that way several years ago, right? So um, most most raptors at the time were wild, and uh, we've always had a problem with illegal bird trade. Uh, it, it happens, you know, at this time time too. Um, but anyway, that's that's one of the main differences. Is like like you know to to be a falconer, you, there's there's no like licensing system. Uh, you need a uh, you need a hunting license to hunt with a gun. So if you want to hunt with a shotgun or a rifle, you, you need to go, you know, you do need to take a hunter safety course, you know. So, you know, we're, we're trying to to get that for falconry too, but yeah, at the moment it's it, it, it's it's not on the on the regulations, right? So basically in our local club, we have tried to encourage that. And since we've been working with the authorities uh, doing raptor rehabilitation for all this time, um, we have a good uh, relationship with the authorities, and, and they really consider falconers uh, knowledgeable people that like, I mean, love raptors, and uh, they work for their conservation and for their well-being and not bird dealers, right? Because in the past, in other parts of Mexico, falconers have been involved with illegal trafficking of birds, unfortunately. So so the wildlife authorities kind of label, oh, you're a falconer. Yeah, you're, you're a bird dealer in disguise, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's not always the case. Uh, the, the majority of falconers are, are, are you know, uh, have good intentions, but there has been some rotten apples that have been, uh, you know, uh, involved in, uh, you know, trapping and selling, uh, you know, birds and stuff like that, which is, you know, something very unfortunate. But uh, at, at least in our state, we have tried to, uh, you know, to have a good relationship with the authorities. And uh, fortunately, there's no illegal trading of birds here at, at least that we know of or is uh, tolerated by 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 the falconers right you know mm-hmm. if, if we know of something um, happening you know we'll we'll work with the authorities and uh, you know we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll get uh, people responsible and so so we 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 try to um, to do that you know work in uh, you know for the conservation of of, of raptors 
Well, I mean, it's good that you had the experience of, of kind of like what an actual mentorship, you know, looks like, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, it, it is kind of on the surface, you know, by your experiences in the, in the U S and, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, um, that you're, that you've kind of chosen the, uh, lead by example, you know, like the, the lead by example approach, you know, with, um, you know, kind of the rest of the, uh, you know, the country and, and just, you know, worrying about kind of what is, you know, what affects you in your own backyard and, 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 you know, hope that that, you know, catches on with, with other places. But, you know, if you've already done what you can to establish a good relationship with your local authorities and, and, you know, uh, the things that are within your control, then, then, you know, that's a good start, I think. Yeah. And, and we can't do more. Right. Yeah. Mexico has a federal law, federal federal system, just like the U.S., mm-hmm. but every state has their own, uh, I guess it's a, it's, a, it's a different dominion, right? Like every mm-hmm. state is independent. Sure. So here the wildlife law is, is the same for every state. There's, there's no differences. It's like, no, oh, uh, in this state I actually can uh, trap a bird and this other one. I, no, the, the federal, in the whole country, you, you know, raptors basically can't be touched. You can't keep a, falcon, a, a raptor for falconry unless it's captive bred. Um, so um, that's that's like you know one of the main main differences from the from from the United States, right? Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for elaborating on that. Like, I, I think it's uh, it's always good for like I said, other countries to know you know the differences and uh, you know that that um, you can't really. You know, some, you can't take anything that you have for granted. You know, I, I think a lot of yeah. times, I mean, especially us in the U.S., I think that there's a lot of times that, that we, um, you know, can potentially, you know, take things for granted with our ability to, to trap wild yeah. raptors and, and things like that. And, you know, I mean, it, it's it's just good to appreciate what you, what you have, you know, in a lot of cases. And, and yeah, so, I mean, like I said, thanks for, for expounding on that a little bit. And, um you know, now I think is, is a good time to go ahead and, uh, you know, jump into story time, you know, with, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, your favorite, um, you know, recollection of, a of, a of a hunt that you liked, or, you know, it always sticks out in your mind or a special bird that you had and, and, uh, kind of go that route. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I do have some stories. Uh, it's kind of hard to, uh, hard to pick, but, uh, uh, one one that sticks out, uh, something really unusual is uh, one one year we had a you know pretty bad drought and and we didn't have a lot of water in the ponds, so this very good pond was was pretty small, and uh, it's a pond that usually holds uh, ducks. So I was flying this an autumn an peel sparrows. I I got some peel sparrows from the U.S. Uh, could never breed any pure peels. Uh, but I did manage to breed on autumn peels crosses, and that's what I've flown most. Uh, I mean, most of my long winging career, I guess, has been those those birds, and uh, plus some passage and haggard birds from the rehabilitation. You know, but anyway, let's let's not uh, let's focus <laughs> on the story. So so there's this s- small pond uh, choked with gadwalls. I mean, lots of gadwalls on on the surface, and I had this German short hair pointer. Um, that was, you know, pr- pretty, pretty good dog. So uh, we put the bird up, the bird uh, gets a nice pitch and uh, there was a patch of cattails at, at the edge of the, uh, of the pond, right? So we flush the, the, um, the gadwalls and the bird comes down, hits two ducks and then binds to the third one. And I really didn't, you know, pay much attention to that. I, I, I walked over to, uh, to the bird and, uh, you know, we picked her up from the duck and I was feeding her and everything. And then, you know, the dog was just running around and then the dog gets into the cattails and comes out with a gadwall in his mouth. <laughs> and okay. So second duck and I, you know, put him in the hawking vest and then the dog goes, I, I didn't really think about it. And I kept on, you know, feeding the, the bird and, um, this was late afternoon, so I, I didn't have a, a chance for another flight. So, uh, you know, the dog goes into the cattails again and emerges with yet another duck. <laughs> so, so we caught, uh, you know, three ducks in, in, uh, in one flight, you know, with, which, uh, I mean, it, it happened to me another time with, but only with do, two ducks, like a double, right? Mm-hmm. This, this was a triple. So, uh, that was, uh, 
Interesting. That's nuts. Was it uh was it from a straight stoop or was it like uh you know, kind of like one of those uh you know, um oh shoot, how do how do you however you pronounce or or describe it? I mean yeah, was like it like an angled uh, Yeah, was it was it all just on the on the same angle or was it you know on the up like on the, no, the upswing the, too or the 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 flock was really tight, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was a small pond, and there was probably twenty five ducks or something. So so they all rose at the same time. So it was like a you know a tight formation of ducks, and the the bird uh, came in behind them and just you know passed horizontally through the flock like an <laughs> arrow, right? And so so it hit. I think you know, the, the, the bird just found ducks in its path, right? Yeah. And and just uh, kind of hit them or whatever. And then, <laughs> and then probably found this third duck. Maybe she just crashed into it, right? So she hit two ducks and, and basically, you know, found the other duck in her face. So all she had to do is grab it and land mm-hmm. with it. You know? Yeah, just knock them down like like bowling pins, basically, almost. Yeah. <laughs> and then, the, you know, the, 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 I'm, and I really, you know, if it, if it wasn't for the dog, I would have walked home with, with one duck. And, uh, you know, and it was it was three. And then this same dog, uh, I had I had another interesting flight, is that we were driving, you know, we were driving down the road, and I saw a flock of bobwhites cross the road, uh you know, just, just walking. So, Hey, nice. You know, we, we, we got the Bob whites located and they walked into a field. And, uh, so I, I, I mean, I, I let some time go by. So the quail would, uh, you know, I guess walk into the field a little bit more to get away from the fence. And then I put the, the bird up. This was again, uh, a peel sonatum tiersel. And, um, anyway, the bird goes up you know, not, I mean, when you fly quail, you don't need a bird that goes too high because mm-hmm. it's not practical. You know, right. quail will go into the grass or into the brush before your bird comes down. So probably, uh, you know, a 300, 300 foot pitch is more than enough, right? You, you probably want the bird lower than that. So anyway, this was an open agricultural area, so I could let the, the, the hawk go up a little bit more. So then... Um, I let the dog loose and uh, he establishes a point. So I go in and flush. And there's this covey flushes. The bird comes down and hits a quail. And, uh, you know, the, the quail falls in the grass, right? Mm-hmm. The, the stubble was kind of tall. So the falcon just hit the quail and didn't go to ground. He just, like, made a wing over and, uh, you know, didn't see the quail. So it started mounting again. So the dog gets uh you know puts his nose in the grass and gets the quail and gives it to me so <laughs> so here i have one one bob white in the bag right mm-hmm. so we walked another 30 40 yards and the, the the falcon is overhead and the and the dog points again so you know the same thing you know flush the quail the falcon comes down hits it dead <laughs> and and the dog picks it up but then the falcon since the since the stubble was high ringed up again <laughs> so we had three identical flights you know, I already had three quail in, in the bag, and I said, "Man, this is this is too much, right?" I mean, th- this is I, I've done my damage uh-huh. here, you know, and, and I was really ecstatic, right? Nice dog work, you know, good good performance from the bird, whatever. So so what I did is, uh, you know, I just I just got one of the of the quail that the dog gave me and just threw it up for the bird, and the bird just bound to it and you know went to ground, and that was the end of the flight. But, uh, you know, you, you wish uh, things would go like that every time, right? And, and it's just like extraordinary occurrences, you know. But, but it was, it was, it's a nice memory. And I do have a picture. I have, I have a picture uh, with a couple friends that were with me. So it's, the, the, you know, the, the three of us, you know, holding three quail <laughs> with the falcon and the dog. Well, not only that, but you had witnesses too. To oh yeah. Oh it. yes, yeah. of course, of yeah. course. <laughs> I, have, I have two witnesses. So uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I admire the fact that you're able to hold restraint and not just to see how how long you can keep that streak going. You know, I mean, I think most people would uh, would succumb to that. You know. <laughs> well, really, uh, th- that's been my uh, way of doing things because since it's so hard to find good areas with enough quarry. You you don't want to to uh, you know you don't want to abuse that right. So for example, like the day the day we went out with you and uh, you know caught some quail from a particular covey, uh, we've already it's a fairly large covey. It's probably fifteen scaled quail, and uh, I had already caught one quail from that covey in this season. And we did a double special for you. Uh, we did a, <laughs> we did a double. Uh, uh, 
double, uh, I guess, yeah, double capture. We caught two quail mm -hmm. in that outing. Uh, and so we've, we've caught three quail from that covey, right? That's it. I'm, I'm not touching that covey again this this whole season until next year, right? So so we'll move on to, to others. So you just don't uh, hurt, I guess, the, 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 the population. And we, we do the same with, uh, you know, I guess, jackrabbits and ducks. Normally, um, you know, we go out and catch one. Uh, maybe if I go out on the weekend and I have some friends out or my family comes with me, we'll do like like two flights per falcon and, you know, catch a couple ducks and that's it, you know, but that's on a special occasion. But, yeah, normally we, we try to uh, to hunt enough, but not overdo it, right, because you want to, you know, take care of your quarry numbers, especially with local stuff. Like ducks are, ducks are migratory, right? So, you know, you might have some totally different ducks on that same pond the next day. Mm -hmm. And when, when ducks are coming through, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see all sorts of different species of ducks in your same pond. So one day you'll see teal, the other day it'll be shovelers or pintails or widgeon or gatwell, you know, and quail stay there all the time. So, so you don't want to, to be too hard on them because, you know, then, then you won't have any for next year or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's good that you do that. I mean, you, you never know what the, what the, what's going to happen. You know, you don't know if a hemorrhagic virus is going to, you know, come yeah, in or you, you don't, you don't, you don't know what, what the circumstances are going to be. So if you can hold restraint and, <laughs> and not, you know, worry about, uh, you know, I mean, just, I mean, if you're more concerned with, with the bigger picture, then that's, that's yeah. not a bad thing at all. Well, I mean, you, a lot of people can argue with that. And I know, you know, it's my way of thinking and it might, I mean, it's, I know it's, I mean, if you have a, a, a you know a period of uh, cold weather like a big frost, all the quail are gonna die. You know, even, even if you caught them or you didn't, you know, you, you, you know, when, when when you have a really bad drought or when you have a, you know, really bad cold weather, quail will die anyway. You know, and and, and you didn't you didn't catch them and it's not your fault right and mm -hmm. or or this you know for the last couple of years we have no jackrabbits because of this virus and it's not because we caught them all you know it's nothing to do with with us it, it they just they're just gone you know so sometimes it's like yeah well you know you you don't catch them but then uh, you're trying to take care of them and then mother nature decides that uh you know something else needs to happen and 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 that's it so so i don't know if i'm doing the right thing maybe maybe i'm not but uh i don't know that, that, that's the thing uh that, i mean that's the way we've we've done it you know in the past and i i think i'll still i mean i i, I feel good with that i mean i feel good feeling that uh you know i'm not you know i didn't go out and basically destroyed a covey you know it just I, I caught a couple birds and then i left that covey alone and then you know look for some something else you know or change the area you know before you wipe out all the rabbits in a particular field you know you you go somewhere else yeah well i mean it's all hindsight and you and you never know but i mean if that's the way you want to practice your your falconry then there's there's nothing wrong with that i mean there's yeah. you know i mean it, there's nothing you can do about mother nature but you can control what you want to do you know so yeah. No, I'm that that's cool. But uh but yeah, so well I I mean I guess we can go ahead and uh and end this on um you know, like the the note of whatever you want to end on as far as, you know, do you I mean, do you have anything that you'd like to, you know, pass on to um you know, future generations or just uh you know, a, a different perspective maybe that you might wanna, you know, um, you know, end this on or, or uh, you know, piece of advice or um, you know, something that's special that you've learned over the, all the years that you've been practicing or anything that sticks out in your mind? Well, yeah, I, I could say a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the, 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 one thing that I find most important in the practice of falconry, and if I had to say something to aspiring falconers or future generations is that, you know, the, the, the well-being of your bird comes first. Right. I, I tell you this because, unfortunately, you know, working on a rehab center, you know, I, I, I sometimes get a lot of abused birds that have been in the wrong hands. OK, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I guess that for in, in countries where you just have to do it right. Right. In, in the U.S., you cannot get a license unless you pass a test. Uh, you cannot get a license until your sponsor, which is a knowledgeable person, 
uh, approves of your of your facilities and you have the proper equipment and you know so uh, in in uh, in our country sometimes it doesn't work that way but i think that we need to have uh, you know respect for for the birds you know we we fly right so that's for me it's the the most important thing is that if you're going to have a raptor in captivity you need to do your best to keep it in the best health possible you need to provide the best food possible you have to uh, get have the best facilities you can you can have or you can afford and try to to make your falconry bird as close to what a wild bird would be i'm talking about not just fitness but the condition of the beak the talons the feathers you know, many times you, know, you, you you go out to a meet and you, you look at birds that are just perfect, you know, beautiful. And then other birds that their their feathers are a mess and uh, the, the equipment they have is a mess. So, you know, clearly that guy is not taking proper care of, of his bird, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, I mean, we, we can always make the case that, you know, if properly taken care of and, and flown a lot and hunted a lot, you know that bird's still going to be better off, you know, with with a with a good falconer than they would be in the wild, because you know we all know that so many of these birds die, and and um, I totally agree. I mean, the proper respect needs to be given, and um, I think that's that's very good, very good advice, and uh, or a very good thought, you know. But um, but yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a really good note to end on, and um, you know, I just have to. You know, say for the hundredth time, you know, thank you again so much for for all the hospitality. Um, you know, as I told you, I, I come into situations with with um, no expectations. You know, I mean, I uh, yeah, I always um, try and prepare for the worst and um, you know hope for the best. You know, and in those situations, the uh, you know the best ends up being that much better. You know, if if everything's great, in which they have been this week, I wouldn't have been able to do all this uh, without you and um, your uh, majority of assistance in planning all this. So like I said, thank you again so much for, for your time and, and welcoming me into your home and for, uh, you know, I can't think of too many people that would be willing to just accept what is more or less an acquaintance and, but, but mostly still a stranger and uh, <laughs> you know, chauffeur them, you know, as, as, as much as seven and a half hours away to a different state and place and, and go out of their way to, to show them, uh, you know, a good time and, and, um, you know, uh, introduce them to so many different people and, and, and experiences. So thank you again. And, um, you know, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast and it's been a, a great week. We've enjoyed, uh, having you here and, uh, you're always, you're always welcome when, uh, when Jennifer, uh, uh, mentioned that you'd like to come that's all the you know all the recommendation i needed so uh you know you're always always welcome and uh i'm, I'm happy that you uh you had a good time we, we tried uh, to show you around with with you know very limited time because we really had only five effective days to 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 try and you know show you some some falconry over here but um, yeah, I think it's it's been great, and you know, thank you, thank you so much for for all the effort, you know, the, your equipment, and uh, you know, uh, it, it, you clearly are you know passionate about uh, about doing this, and you know, getting it done, you know, the best way possible. Your your setup is you know pretty impressive. That's why you had to pay taxes, man, at, at customs. <laughs> Uh, you got you got the customs guys scared. Uh, you look like uh, you know you're working for a rock band or something. You're setting up for a for a concert. But uh, yeah, well, th thank you, thank you so much for uh, I guess uh, helping us. Uh, you know, people from around the world that follow your podcast uh, learn a little bit more about falconry in Mexico. And uh, you know, hopefully, we'll we'll stay in touch and and can, can do more of this. Yeah, yeah, no, and and like we were talking about the other day, I, I'd love to eventually do a, a Mexico international series, uh, part two, where, you know, we get to go to uh, seven hours or eight hours in the opposite direction and, yeah. and go see some other cool stuff or whatever the case may be. And hopefully people, um, you know, enjoy this. I'm, I know they, they probably will. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's been great even despite, you know, some, some of, um, you know, your friends is, uh, you know, hesitancy or, or, um, 
you know, a, a worry, I guess, about, you know, some of the, the language barrier issues and, you know, English, of course, being a, a second language. But I think, you know, like I said, I mean, everybody has been great. And, um, you know, like I said, I, can, I couldn't ask I couldn't ask for for a better, um, you know, a, a better result. You know, so I think we did as much as we could in, in a week and getting seven of these recorded along with, you know, being able to absorb what we and, and do what we did in in five days, I think is uh, is is is, <laughs> you know, I, we, I think, uh, you know, more than uh, more than a good result. Well, uh, you know, we we uh, we're glad that uh, that you're happy and it was <laughs> it was it was great to have you here. Thank you. Well, like I said, I appreciate it again. And um, yeah, I guess uh, it's almost, uh, you know, fifth uh, fifth dinner time. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we need to go eat some more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For everybody that's listening on a, on a quick ending note, I've uh, I've not been fed so many times in, in a week time span in my entire life. Um, but uh, it's I, I, I feel kind of like the uh, the the girl that swells up like the blueberry and Willy Wonka or something, you know, like uh, except it's instead of, uh, you know, juice, it's tacos and <laughs> and, uh, and and every other Mexican dish you can think of. But it's been great. And uh, yeah, thank you again. And uh, yeah, let's go do that. OK. <laughs> All right.